you're listening to the Alan Gray podcast. I'm Tim Ucker, one of the portfolio managers at Alan Gray and your host for this episode. 2023 marks a significant milestone for Alan Gray. We are celebrating 50 years of investing. We have always put our clients' interests first. We would like to thank you for placing your trust in us and your continued support. We work tirelessly to ensure that your trust in Alan Gray remains well-placed. South Africa's challenges are well-known, and in recent months, we have received many questions from clients and advisors about how we think about the local risks. I am joined by my colleagues, Sipasikhle Zwane and Jitin Pillay. They are both analysts who spend most of their time researching shares in the local investment universe. In this episode, we will share some of our thoughts on the local landscape and explain why we remain optimistic about the investment case for many JSE-listed companies. As we celebrate 50 years of investing using the same investment philosophy, let me open by asking each of you if you think the investment philosophy is still relevant uh, or does it need to change? Thinking about an investment philosophy, it's probably important to acknowledge the, the different ways to manage money. I think what's important is to pick an investment philosophy and, and stick with it for a decent amount of time. And I say that because markets tend to go through cycles and different investment philosophies tend to come in and out of favor in those cycles. So the, the risk of chopping and changing is you actually mistime the cycle completely and, and actually miss the, the period of outperformance that you should be rewarded for for taking the pain before that. So for me, it's a tried and tested investment philosophy is, is kind of your true north and something you stick to throughout. But I think it's important to also add that that doesn't mean you don't make improvements to your process. For me, it's it's a function of how do you make iterative improvements to in, improve your competitive edge while sticking to your core philosophy. Right, so you keep the philosophy the same, but you kind of tweak the process as you go along. And, and specifically, what do you think? I think for, for a business like Alan Gray, where we focus on sort of longer term investing, so investing like a business owner, buying not just shares, but actually buying a piece of a business. I think when you're doing that, you almost have to think of how much you're paying for a business. So if, if, if this wasn't shares listed on JSE and you're just a businessman, I don't know, living in Krugersdorp, the way you buy a business, you'd have to think of the, the value or the, the price you're paying and the value of the business. So buying shares for cheaper than what you think what they're worth is probably the right way to do it if you're thinking as a business owner and thinking about holding the business for a long time. So how much free cash flow can this business generate over a long enough investment period? And sticking to that, even though sometimes the market might think the thing is worth differently to what you've assessed it to be, I think that works for our investing style. And, and I think clients understand that we invest for long term and we are behaving like business owners rather than just trading widgets on the JSE. Okay, yeah. Well, then that was a, that was a trick question. So you've passed the test. I'm going to make a note <laughs> for your performance appraisals. No, but I agree. I think the philosophy stays the same. So obviously, something's changed. The, you know, my view would be the kind of market environment changes, and you, you definitely want to tweak your process and make improvements over time where you can. But then some things don't change, like human behavior doesn't change. And yeah, I want to echo Chaten's point. I think you want to stick to your philosophy through, through good times and bad. But so today, we're talking about the risks and opportunities in the local market. So I thought let's start with what our exposure is. So if you th think of, for example, the Alan Gray Balanced Fund, where, where lots of clients are invested, 
obviously we've we've got different places we can invest, right? We can invest in local shares, bonds, or cash, or we can take money offshore. And and recently with the regulation having changed, we can now actually take forty five percent offshore, which we haven't done. We we have increased to some extent. We at sort of about thirty five or thirty six percent offshore at the end of the first quarter. So pushback, I think, from a lot of clients would be, you know, why haven't we used our full offshore allocation, given how negative things are in SA and just the, the headlines you read in the newspaper? So what would you tell kind of clients who ask you that question or stop you in the street and say, what, what are you doing? It's crazy. When we value companies, we, we really try to do two things. The first thing we look at are the company fundamentals. What are their revenues, margins, earnings, free cash flow? the fundamental economics of the business that ultimately generate what we call intrinsic value. The second part to that is we then try to look at the valuation and to say, well, what are you paying for that today? And I think it's important to make that distinction because you can have a company in an economy that is weak, that is stagnant, that is facing challenges of load shedding, that is on a very cheap multiple of earnings or multiple of cash flow, and actually, because of the, the starting valuation you're paying for that company, things just have to be less worse and you'll probably make a decent return out of it. A good example is China. China, we know the kind of economic miracle that's happened there as they've liberalized their economy. But actually, the Chinese stock market has been a terrible place to be. If you, if you invested kind of late 2015, you've lost money, you know. Yeah. Uh, as we stand today. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. You can have a very strong economy, but if, if that's priced in at the start, actually your outcomes can be pretty poor at the end. And I think as we sit here in South Africa today, we, we know the risks that are around. We, we know we're in a weak economy. We, we understand the risks posed by load shedding. But you, know, you can buy banks on nine times earnings on average, and you can buy retailers on nine times earnings, and you can buy SA industrials on eight times earnings on average. You know, these are very, very cheap multiples if you think the US trades at 22 times earnings and, and the world index is on 19 times earnings. I also think the, to some extent, the difference between local and offshore is academic. And I say this because there are dual listed or, or even SA only listed businesses that generate a lot of their earnings and revenue offshore. So if you take, I guess, the market cap of a BHP bulletin, for example, massive minor, very tiny in the South African benchmark, about 1%, 1 and a bit percent. Compare that to MTN, much bigger in the benchmark, about 3%. But BHP is actually 10 times, a uh, bit more than 10 times as big as, as, as MTN. So in, in effect, those categories are partially academic. And then there's stuff that are also very influenced by offshore factors, not necessarily in listing, but indirectly. So if you take out gold miners, for example, the gold price does not move because of what's happening in South Africa. There's no way that's, that's the case. Yeah. Uh, maybe it was in the 1800s, but not at the moment. Or you take the PGM miners as well. So, so there's a lot of local listed companies that are offshore earners. And sometimes we even compare those local listed companies within their industries as well. So take British American Tobacco versus Philip Morris. He can buy British American Tobacco for like half the multiple of, of Philip Morris. So even within that, the, the shares that are way cheaper that are listed in South Africa. So we have a strong preference for those versus the offshore stuff. Right. So if, you, if you're looking at the fact sheet for the Allen Gray Balanced Fund and it says you know, a certain percentage locally, that's obviously only the percentage of companies that are listed locally. And like you say, something like British American Tobacco, it's listed in SA, but it's actually global earnings. So you should almost think of that as kind of not that exposed to South Africa. There's much less 
driven by South Africa only in our market than we think. Yeah, yeah, we've done a bit of exercise when I did it a while back. It was sort of between fifty and sixty percent of the market cap of the JSE. So what we think of as the local market is actually offshore. So it's quite a decent chunk. And on the point you made, then on kind of valuations and you know what should people expect for returns? So I see you've got your crystal ball there, but it's obviously hard to pick a number. But if if we just think kind of where we are in the cycle, so you, you say expectations are low. So do you think returns? For the local market, you know, could we expect returns better than the last few years, given that returns haven't been that great, you know, in, in the medium term, if you think kind of the last four or five years? I think it's important to differentiate what's happened over the last four or five years. The JSC, the Osha Index, hit its record, call it late January this year. But actually, if you if you look at the performance, it's it's been a bifurcation. It's been the large Rand hedge mega cap stocks that have massively outperformed as a collective basket. And you've had the South Africa Inc. stocks, for lack of a better word, effectively be flat since since 2010. When you put those two things together, you know, when you look at a headline level, it, it looks like South Africa returns have been, all the returns have been very strong. But again, that there's disparity there. So overall, as a market, I'm personally bearish. I, I guess I'm bearish because I, I look at some of the big stocks that are listed here in South Africa. If you look at a share like Richmond, it's recently hit its all-time high, both in Rands and Swiss francs. Richmond is almost 20% of the all-share index. So if you think we're going into to tough economic circumstances going forward, you know, you're paying a high multiple of high earnings. I'm personally a bit worried about that share price. And when that's one-fifth of your benchmark, it becomes very difficult for the market overall to outperform that. However, if we come locally, and we, we talked earlier about that bifurcation, Local stocks look extremely cheap and they've derated substantially. Derating is when the multiple that you're paying for a stock decreases over time. So to the extent that things are, are slightly better than people are expecting, I actually think the returns from, from local stocks are, are quite attractive. That being said, I, I don't think it's, it's a case of throw a dart at any local stock and, and you, you kind of hit gold. For me, I think stock selection is important. So the local stocks that we favor in the portfolio are definitely those that that have a, some sort of self-help story, something like, like a Woolworths, where you're not f- dependent on the macro for the business to do well, or stocks that are just extremely, extremely cheap on, on single-digit multiple of earnings type valuations, you know, something like, like Cup or like Tsogo Sun. The latter bucket tends to be those small and mid-cap stocks that, that seem to have been forgotten. So in terms of returns to your question, I'm bearish on the things that have outperformed over the last seven or eight years, and and I'm favorable on the things that have underperformed, as you would expect, I guess, as a contrarian. Okay, yeah, it sounds quite contrarian. Okay, so to summarize, you think some of the big stocks are quite expensive, but generally the local or domestic companies are on the cheaper end, but with the caveat that you have to apply some stock selection to, given things might go wrong. Yeah, I think the classic kind of value investor framework we tell you the local market is very cheap at the moment you just look simply at like the valuation multiples they're low versus history and typically that would suggest low valuations give you high returns because everyone's too negative and the returns are better than what people think the counter argument i guess or the maybe the risk at the moment is that this time's different and actually you know the economy is so bad and we've got load shedding level six and what if it's level 10 and the economy is just going one way and actually things don't bounce back do you think there's a risk of that? Or maybe we're underestimating that risk, maybe? I think a little bit of both. 
okay. <laughs> safe answer. Okay. But I do think to some extent it's a stock picker's paradise. I say that because difficulty in the economic environment will impact different companies differently and different companies and management teams will be able to react to that differently. And the perception that different investors will have on the, the same risk will also be different, which creates an opportunity for you to, to, to apply your mind and, and do the right research. Uh, maybe an example is if you take the costs of load shedding, so the initial costs will, will be quite high for, for most businesses as they have to install generators. Um, diesel costs were quite high. Diesel prices were high as well um, in the last year. But over time, that spreads in some way. So it won't be borne by a single part of the overall ecosystem. So it's retailers won't carry the full cost of load shedding. There'll be some inflation, so they'll push that on to consumers. And then there'll be some that will be borne by landlords. So if you have a sort of sense of that and you, and you can think about that, do more research in that than your competitors, then you might find an opportunity there. So I do think there are opportunities and, and I think difficulty creates sort of a space to differentiate yourself by doing proper in-depth research and understanding the environment in which you're operating in. Some businesses will be left along the wayside because I, I don't think it is easy, but some will, I think, do well. And, so, and some tend to do well in difficult operating environments as well. Right. So we can have some businesses might bounce back and come through stronger and some might not make it at all. And I, I guess we saw this through COVID as well. It was a similar kind of environment, something like maybe Woolies was an example where the market was really negative and they had their own problems. And actually, you know, we bought the share very successfully and it actually bounced back quite strongly. But then you're going to have some companies which is just not going to make it. So like a mistake we made was on Nampak, for example, where actually the, the environment was just so tough and they had all, all kinds of challenges they were facing. And actually, they, they just haven't been able to overcome that. It's just been too tough. So you want to be selective on those, I guess. Or a nice example is like take something like outsurance, right? So fires and rain in Australia and then all of a sudden revenue starts to grow. All of a sudden reinsurance prices come up. So you have to price for that. All of a sudden the whole industry is actually putting pricing on people's short-term insurance when before they didn't need to do it. And that, that's a big change when, when all of a sudden you can grow revenue. I guess it does depend on the consumer being able to handle the, the inflation in premiums. But that is one that's a sort of end-of-the-world hedge or getting close to the end-of-the-world hedge, not quite end-of-the-world. Or sometimes when things get worse, you're able to put in more um, price increases because the industry has to do it to be profitable. I think what's interesting now, what's going to be interesting... We're starting to see the first order effect of load shedding now in company earnings, be it diesel, low footfall, higher wastage. I think the second order effect is as those companies hope to pass on those costs to consumers is, well, what then happens to the South African consumer? And then what does that mean for the banks? You know, what, they, what does that mean for unsecured lending in South Africa? Does it spike bad debts? Thus far, the banks have actually all been reporting stellar results coming out of COVID, bad debts have normalized. You know, we, they've got a natural tailwind from, from high interest rates. It'll be interesting to see what that looks like in 18 months to, to two years' time. That, that's from a consumer's perspective. From a company perspective, it, it feels increasingly like it's becoming a fight for market share, given that the market is flat. So what happens again in 18 to 24 months' time if you know, growing revenue is a dogfight? So that's the bearish side, I guess. It's it's you know, but I guess that that's probably why we have jobs to try and weigh these balance of probabilities and and determine well, you know, what's a value trap, which is something that looks cheap and is likely to continue to look cheap as it deteriorates, i.e., a NAMPAC, uh, or what is you know, a buying opportunity, something a company that can 
that has an enduring competitive advantage that can sustain that even in tough times. Okay, so I mean, if you think of of load shedding, which is the most topical issue at the moment, I guess, like you said, there's there's two sides of it. The one side is costs, generators, solar, etc. And the other side is revenue. Consumers are under pressure, people aren't going shopping, etc. So, I mean, for the companies you guys cover, like what, what has sort of been the impact so far? Is, is the cost side or the revenue side the worst or does it differ a lot? And, you know, how, how big is the issue really? A good example is, is Woolworths. So Woolworths have said that at stage six load shedding, they spend 25 million rand a month on diesel and wastage. So that excludes the revenue impact for now. So to put that into context, um, that's 300 million rand a year that's roughly 10% of their operating profit in a year. So if you think we have recurring stage six load shedding, that's 10% of your profitability gone. Now that ignores what happens thereafter to, to the consumer. You know, do they say, well, actually, I don't want to buy this, this fresh product and put it into my fridge because actually it's going to spoil and I can't store it. So actually, I'm going to shop less. So then the impact's even worse because not only are you incurring the diesel and the, and the waste, but now you're losing the revenue from that as well. So these numbers are big. You know, ShopRite have said their diesel bill, just diesel for the six months, uh, July to December, was 560 million rand. That has stage six load shedding in it, but it, you know, it, it's not the recurring... Not for uh, the whole period. Correct. It's not the recurring uh, stage six that we've seen in, in 2023. And at Willie's thing, so one of the companies that I look at is, is Oceana. And on the flip side, on fresh food, one of the, the, the biggest portion of their business is Lucky Star Tinfish. And what they're finding is in, in a lot of places, because people are unwilling or less willing to stock fresh and frozen foods, the bread aisles and the canned food aisles are getting much bigger and bigger. So that's one of the businesses that on the revenue side probably looks relatively more competitive versus what it would like a year ago, mainly because people think of tin fish versus other proteins. So in your meal, you can can have tin fish. It's a one can. It can feed a family of four, six, depends on how much tomatoes you're going to use and other stuff in your sauce um, versus frozen chicken where it's very difficult to buy in bulk and store it in your fridge at the moment. So there are some small things, but there are some that can can benefit. But Maybe on one that does much worse as well on the revenue side. So um, multi-choice, so they own DSTV. <laughs> the more load shedding you get, the less likely you are to pay a subscription. Um, the more likely you are to just sit in the dark because you're not going to be able to watch TV all the time. In a business like that where um, the incremental subscriber, so if a, an additional person subscribes to it, there's not a lot of extra cost to that. So the number of subscribers you have is quite important on covering the overall cost base. And it's very difficult to hold on to subscribers in South Africa if, if you don't have energy for like, I don't know, six hours of the day. Yeah, and difficult to increase your prices. It's right. quite, people aren't going to be willing to pay higher prices if they can only watch TV for 16 hours a day or how long ever it might, might be. Especially if you're missing out on the primetime shows. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, what's been interesting for me on the retailers is so, so those numbers you mentioned, and Willie's about 10% of the, of the earnings. So it's a big number, but it's not like it's half the earnings. So if you want to be sort of contrarian or optimistic here, you know, you could say it's 10% of earnings, but it's in the base now. So if we stay at this level of load shedding, you know, hopefully that's sort of a base which you can grow a little bit on going forward. Or do you think that's sort of a bit delusional if we, if maybe it gets worse? I, I guess we don't know. I think perhaps the market was a bit delusional at the start of the year when we had the, the bad stage six load shedding kick in. 
and you you hadn't really seen companies report yet or report the impact of it. And I think the share prices hadn't yet reflected that. As more company guidance came out, and I think especially foreign investors woke up to the reality of, of what these extra costs mean, you've seen derating in most South African ink shares after that. I think your your point is valid. It's not half of earnings, thankfully. Um, and hopefully, you know, things can, can get better. It's, it's, we're going to have a tough winter, it looks like. You know, but thereafter, also as a result of these companies doing everything they can to get off the grid as quick as possible, I think that the, the impact can be managed. And again, it comes down to then what are you paying yeah. for all of these risks? Yeah, I think bringing it back to expectations is good. So, and, and also the point on the foreigners, which foreign investors are really the marginal kind yeah. of buyer or seller in our market. And we've seen them exit to a large extent and they read all the negative headlines on South Africa back home. And a lot of people have kind of dumped mm-hmm. SA consumer shares and now I think like you say it's priced in so actually now it's very well known and it's not it's not sort of a negative surprise when a company says we've had a negative impact from load shedding. Fushini was an interesting example for me as well where they've also obviously like everyone had a, a negative earnings impact from load shedding but they've now said by the end of the year 80% of their stores are going to be on generators so you've already you spent all that capital expenditure to buy the generators so sure, you still need to run them, but it's sort of a once-off to incur that expense um, to buy the equipment. I think actually the, the derating for me might even create a bit of an opportunity. And it's like an early cost. And I mean, in most of the, a lot of the management meetings that I sat in with the landlords, <laughs> the property companies, most of them are realizing, especially since a lot of the tenants at the moment are national companies, so the big guys who can be bullies sometimes, but the negotiating power is such that you, you have to have a good center for them. So a lot of them are realizing that they have to invest in energy and, and renewables. So I guess half of our meetings were spent on discussing whether the Tesla power wall is the right one or to use a different kind of battery or that's, is solar a good investment? How does that compare to generators? And eventually you'll see it probably in the escalations they can charge. So how much higher rentals can go? Maybe your tenant is unwilling to pay you as much rentals if you haven't installed this for them. You'll see it in, in co-investing uh, and, and them working together with, with the retailers to share the cost. So day one costs, people are reactive, you're moving very quickly. And then maybe over the longer term, you're actually putting in energy that is actually competitive often to what ESCOM would have been at the current escalations that you're getting for ESCOM energy. Maybe our batteries get more competitive. Maybe battery costs come down over time. So there is a little bit of an opportunity. Maybe it just takes a bit longer than you think and then the, the initial cost is a bit high. Okay. And and just on the, the property companies, the, the landlords, just kind of contextualize for us, how does that work if a shopping mall is putting in generators? Like who's paying? How does that work? It seems to be different for different people. Okay. Um, but I think the principle is there'll be a sharing of, of the cost over the longer term. And then some people, you just want to have the better sensor. So you know if you don't have things that are required in the current environments we're in, you're not going to be able to charge a fair, fair rental. And also rentals are dependent on the actual call it trading density or revenue you're able to generate. So if your center can't generate that, then longer term, your rentals probably will be a bit weak. So economically, longer term, it will be shared. Shorter term, I think it's, it might be different from company to company. Yeah, some of the numbers I've seen have been sort of between half and three quarters of the cost for the landlord gets passed on to the tenant. So 
obviously not something they make a profit on and the part they can't pass on they just have to stomach so in the short term it's definitely hurting the the property companies some of the the retailers are having to take matters into their own hands so Willie's for example told us they have a generator at every store their own generator and the reason for that is they spoil a product if the cold chain's broken for more than 8 continuous minutes so because they can't have that and the landlords are not willing to run their generators day and night including when the malls are closed they're actually having to install their own generators and put their own diesel into it and run that continuously because actually the appetite from landlords to meet those strict requirements i think it's it's fairly limited okay maybe the downside of the Willys brand they've cultivated a very picky customer who's not willing to <laughs> tolerate um, something below a certain level okay maybe just to kind of come back to the point we started on we spoke about sort of different types of investment cases in the domestic market and i almost put them in three buckets so i'm going to put this to you and then you can tell me what you think so you have some companies which are self-help stories. So Woolies is maybe an example of that. They they had their own problems in Australia. So it's not the investment case is not so much about the economy improving. It's more self-help. Then you've got ones which you know some people call like champions, like you know like a Capitec or a Shoprite, where they're just winning market share or maybe outsurance. And actually, it seems like you know whether the economy is tough or or good, they they're going to do well regardless. And then you've got kind of a third bucket, which, you know, let's say very cheap companies. So they're not champions and they're not self-help, but they're just really cheap. And if you look at our portfolio, I think we've got a mix of the three where some of our competitors have said, actually, we only want to have champions or we only want to have self-help. So, I mean, what do you think about that? Do you think it's a mistake to have a mix? Should we sticking to one of the categories? No, I think sticking to the categories would be a bit lazy on our parts. Okay. <laughs> and when you're building up bottom-up portfolios, you look at the individual companies and think about how much you're willing to pay for them relative to their fundamentals. So some of the champions are actually really good businesses and they should trade at what they trade at. And some, some of them are even cheap at the, the high multiples that they trade at. The ones that can be a bit of a concern is I guess the ones that are just cheap and maybe the fundamentals aren't as amazing, but we look into valuation and if you're buying them in your own personal capacity, not as shares, but as a business owner, maybe you'd be very happy to buy them. Or not happy, but you'd be financially happy, but maybe they'll be very stressful to own. But I think, yeah, I think it's worth owning things that are cheap in the portfolio relative to their fundamentals. They always bring it back relative to the fundamentals. I maybe take a slightly different view. One thing we've learned, especially here at Alan Gray, we, we've seen over long periods of time that companies that continue to win can often continue to win for a long time. And sometimes a high multiple is justified if the growth is justified. So for me, I, I, I would propagate having a mix of things in your portfolio because I guess ultimately what, what makes things difficult now is we're not sure where, where things land. If South Africa is a very tough place economically for the next five or 10 years, the companies that are going to win are probably going to be the, the Capitex and the ShopRites, you know, the, the companies that are trading on 20 plus times multiples of their earnings. But actually, if, you know, if you're growing at 10 or 15% a year, all of a sudden that multiple doesn't look so expensive in, in two or three years time. That's an outcome that could happen. The second outcome is actually, you know, South Africa, we, we do what we do as normal. We get close to the abyss. We don't go off. We kind of step back a bit and, and things kind of trundle down the road. And actually then the, the companies that are super cheap, you know, they, they do a bit better than people were expecting and, and they're the outperformers. I think the difficulty is we, we don't know today. 
So, so I would definitely propagate for, for a mix of things in your portfolio. Definitely kind of from a bottom-up perspective, if, if something looks optically expensive, the growth should justify that. But I don't think I would necessarily shy away from, from a company that's, that's on a higher multiple of earnings just because it's on a higher multiple of earnings. Yeah, this is something that just like look perpetually cheap and maybe it's a risk thing or, or people are a bit worried about it. And on risk management, I guess that's why we have our own way and, and we have what we call star ratings that, that limit the, the position size. But like when I talk about like perpetually cheap things, like a tiny company, CMH, one of my favorites fundamentally, it's always on a incredibly low multiple, but the total return over a very long period of time has been incredible. And that's just because they sell cars, uh, car dealerships, and it is a highly levered, effectively highly levered business model. Um, but if you do your research and, and you think about what the relative risk is to the opportunity and how much of a position size you're willing to have, it's a tiny business, so you can't have a huge position size in the the founders of big shareholders, but always think about how big of a position size you're willing to have. And you can actually make a lot of money on that share just because it seems to be always perpetually cheap. I just can't understand why it's always cheap, for example. We've had variations of those kind of shares in the portfolio, things where either the earnings don't grow that much or we expect actually quite low earnings growth. But you know, people might say, okay, why do you want to own those shares? But, but actually, they can be good investments if they pay you a high dividend and they grow a little bit or keep up with inflation. Actually, those can be great investments. On sort of that theme, the, a lot of the financials, I think, fall in that kind of category. So, Jatin, you mentioned some of the banks. How do you see the outlook for the, for the investment case for the, for the local banks at the moment? You know, when, when people think of, of the South African economy and they want some exposure to that, and, and I guess particularly the foreign investors, they generally reflect those views through the banks. You know, either buying them or selling them. So, so for me, the, the banks as they look today, if you think South Africa is going to, to be tough economically for the next few years, I don't think the banks are going to enjoy the same tailwinds that they have, say, post-2002. So, so for me, it's not that you know every bank is going to do well in South Africa. I think it's important then picking the banks that are, I think, going to, to outperform the others. So naturally... When interest rates are higher, all banks can can generally charge a bit more for for their loans, and they then they have to pay on deposits. So that's a natural tailwind. But I think talking earlier about that second order effect, we haven't seen bad debts spike as yet, and I think that could be coming. When an economy is stagnant, the lending environment or being able to lend out or make new loans is also very difficult. So the banks that I like are, are those unsurprisingly that are slightly cheaper on the valuation spectrum. So something like like Standard Bank and NetBank, which Sipasisha covers, these are banks that that trade on nine or eight times earnings. They have very high dividend yields, very similar to the multiples actually. And they're probably some things they can do within the bank to improve their prospects, as opposed to, to a bank like First Rand, which is other than Capitec, the most highly rated bank in our on, on the JSE. And actually, I would argue there's there's not a lot of self-help there. You know, they are the best bank. They've outperformed the others. So actually, when, when things are tough, uh, I'm not sure there's, there's much they can do to help themselves. Uh, I may be wrong. Yeah. I think what's maybe surprising to some people is you think the economic outlook is so poor, growth has been tough, load shedding is so high, um, you know, consumers are under pressure, so like surely the banks must be struggling. But but actually, bad debts haven't really increased much. 
So how, how do you kind of reconcile that? Are the banks just really good at lending or they've been very cautious or like what's going on? So one point there is that it's probably coming. Things did deteriorate quite quickly as rates rose quicker than people expected. So that's one aspect. The other thing is that banks are in the business of, say, buying risk. So any bank can grow much faster than, or as fast as it wants almost just by loosening credit quality or standards a little bit. And I think coming into, I guess, maybe even over the last decade, the South African economy has almost de-geared a bit where incomes relative to servicing or income relative to, to, to loans that people have, have has, has decreased. So it has been a period of, of, of slow loan growth relative to GDP growth. And a lot of the stuff written over the last 10 years has been way more conservative than it was before. On sort of bad debts versus interest that you can charge or interest margins, I think to some extent the two offset. So when interest rates are high, then you know the bad debts might start to follow you. Um, and then when interest rates start to, to come down, then the, the bad debts decrease and then that helps your sort of risk-adjusted margin. So that's taking your margin that you make on lending and taking off a risk for bad debts for that. So I think to some extent, not perfectly, but to some extent, the two do play off each other. So a downturn in the, in the economy doesn't necessarily mean it's bad news for the banks. They could actually, earnings could be kind of stable. You lose a bit more on the bad debts, but you make a bit more on the interest income. So it sort of balances out. And, and, and an interesting thing is that the best loans are written in the worst times. So if affordability is good at the moment, so if you had to uh, take a vintage analysis, so maybe just a, a thought experiment, a vintage analysis on the loans that are written today versus the loans that were written in COVID, um, I think a lot of the, the best loans will be written now at the higher interest rates. If you can afford it at these rates, then you're probably the right client. A sort of related point on banks, it's, it's been in the news a lot what's happening in the US. So recently we saw the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and some of the other smaller banks have, have been struggling as well and sort of a lot's been written about what's happening there where you know all the depositors suddenly pull their deposits for in quite a short amount of time from the bank and you have sort of not you know you could debate if it's a, if, if it was a run on the bank but at least something similar to a run on the bank happened and you know suddenly a bank which people thought was fine and you know not a, not a small institution was sort of bankrupt overnight and had to be rescued by the government effectively so we've had some clients ask us, you know, what do we think about it? Could it happen in South Africa? What are kind of the similarities? Do you have any thoughts on that? A bank is a strange business because it's, it's highly levered, for one. So the equity relative to the assets, so the money it has itself, its own retained earnings or capital is very low relative to the amount of money that they've lent out. And if you lose deposits very quickly, you often don't have that cash to pay back people quickly. So you often have to sell things. So you have to sell whatever you hold on, on your balance sheet, but also you have to sell your loans almost if you, if you can do that. So those things are very important in thinking about banks. I think what's very different in South Africa is our banks, I, I guess the big four or five now, focus a lot on having strong retail franchises. And what a good retail franchise gives you, it gives you a deposit base that's not there just to make a little bit of money. So your deposits are not there because of interest rates necessarily, but some are. And what our retail banks tend to do is they have offerings that are competitive at different durations, call it. So you can 
actually put your deposits down and get a four, five, six, seven percent interest rate in South Africa. Also, you can just have your, your salary go through. So they have the ability to not get impacted too much by higher rates because they do offer you higher rates for your deposits within their bank. So where Silicon Valley Bank wasn't giving you much for your deposits and you when the, when the rates go up in the US, you'll take your money out and go put it somewhere else. In South Africa, you can be like, okay, I'm just going to shift my deposit base to my fixed call or my call deposit um, product that will be on the same app as, as my uh, retail bank. And I think that, that makes a massive difference in protecting a bank from, uh, from a run. But I think, yeah, deposits, stable deposits that are there, not just for the sake of interest rates, because banking is to a large extent, can easily be a commodity. So how do you differentiate yourself and how do you make yourself not a commodity? By having a good retail franchise, offering products, having you know, good clients, that helps probably quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, I agree with your point on the deposits. I think that's, that's probably the most important one. The point I would add is just on the financial conditions in the market. So in the US, you had sort of extremely easy financial conditions. Mm-hmm. You know, interest rates close to zero, if you had a deposit account, you were earning like no interest on your deposit. And in, in a very short amount of time, because they had this high inflation in America, you know, interest rates went to 5%. And suddenly people realized like, you know, hold up, I'm earning nothing on my bank deposit. Like I'd rather earn 5%, please. And they take their money somewhere else. And it happened in such a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, the bank lost money on investments also due to this, you know, very fast change in interest rates. So you had a combination of two things happening um, at the same time, which hurt them a lot. And if you compare that to SA, you know, we definitely don't have easy financial conditions. We've had sort of uh, quite a bit higher interest rates for quite a while. So the banks haven't been operating in, you know, what you could say was a bit of an artificial environment. Mm-hmm. So, so they've probably been stress tested actually a bit more by, by the market, I would say. There's a large degree of, of confidence involved in being able to keep a banking system stable overall. I think if you have you know, very large depositors who can realize when things are wrong. They run quickly because they can tell that if I don't get my deposits out, someone else will do it. And it becomes like a a bit of game theory to some extent. Whereas in South Africa, most of our retail banks have millions of depositors who wouldn't think the same. And and I guess we also have deposits that are insured. So people are less worried about their, their deposits as they would be in the US if you like a very large depositor that's outside the bounds of, of deposit insurance. Yeah, so we've, we've spoken about quite a few sectors on the, on the local market. Something we, we just mentioned briefly were some of the dual listed shares, you know, companies like British American Tobacco who, who listed in SA, but they also listed elsewhere. What do you guys think in, in terms of the opportunities on the kind of more classic domestic companies versus some of the dual listed ones? Do you have a strong preference for the one class versus the other? Or do you think it's good to have a mix like we currently do in, in the portfolio? I would definitely advocate for a mix. To my earlier point, you know, things are uncertain, and when things are uncertain, you well, you want to ensure you don't hedge to the average, but you want to have some protection if if things don't quite play out to your worldview. So, to my mind, I you know I think that you can make cases for both dual listers that are here in South Africa, something like like AB InBev, which you know it, it's been one of our, our largest buys for our clients in the last twelve to to eighteen months. You know, it's it's listed in South Africa. It has a South African business here. That's that's call it four percent of its revenue, but by and large, it, it has nothing to do in, with South Africa. It, it trades on a reasonable multiple of, of what we think the business can earn uh, through the cycle. And actually, if you look at the business as it stands today, they've got probably the strongest beer brands in the world. They've got 
I think what we would rate as one of the best management cultures of, of firms that we look at. Their earnings at present are, are depressed because you've had this high input cost inflation over the last 18 months. Price increases have come through, but to the extent that those input cost pressures ease, which they are now doing, and those price increases remain, actually that, that can be quite positive for, for earnings going forward. And they generate a lot of free cash flow, which is, again, something we focus on quite significantly. So if you can buy a business on that, like that for, call it 16 times what we think it can earn through the cycle, you know, that's relatively attractive. It's, it's not, you know, four times that you pay for, for cup industrial holdings, but you could probably make a case for having both in your portfolio. Um, yeah. You know, one is super cheap, South Africa focused, heavy industrial business, which is really out of favor in the market. But things, you know, just have to be slightly better and actually the, ch the share is really cheap versus AB InBev, which, you know, is this big company. Everybody knows it very well, has some idiosyncratic factors why it's underperformed, but actually could also do really well. Yeah, the point of having a mix is definitely something certainly I think about when, you know, putting my part of the portfolio together is, for example, on the RAND. If you don't have a strong view of where the RAND is going, which is, you know, true most of the time. Um, when, when we're not at an extreme, it probably makes sense to have a mix of things which do well in a strong RAND environment and in a weak RAND environment. So you're not taking this massive macro view, you know, swinging for the fences one way or another, um, which is obviously not what we try and do. We try and focus on the on the bottom up yeah. analysis. So maybe, yeah, as we come to a close, I've got one or two last questions for you. On the SA portfolio, so you mentioned AB InBev, Jaten, um, are, are there other stocks you know you disagree with with what the portfolio managers have put in the portfolio so things you would either put in or things you would take out any any tips for me please uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay tim <laughs> or are we are we just really smart and we've done everything perfectly there are some things where comparing say a local business and then offshore portion of it so one business that i'm excited about is is, is spa so it, it trades on a much lower multiple than, than Woolworths. I think their local business is different in that they don't necessarily own, well, they own a few stores, but they don't own the stores. So they have local retailers who understand their customers quite well. They have the, the weird snacks that you can't get somewhere else that some suburb of Cape Town loves um, that nowhere else in the country might love. So they, they understand exactly who they're servicing. And what the spa group does is they are the wholesaler behind that and the beauty of that business model is that it's not very capital intensive so they generate a lot of free cash flow in south africa and have offshore businesses in ireland and switzerland which is getting food inflation for the first time food inflation in europe is not the same as in africa where food is a big part of a person's spending basket whereas in europe it's much smaller so they way better able to handle food inflation and then you have this polish business that's making quite a big loss um, that just needs to get to break even so i think that's like an incredible opportunity. You, you do have some conflicts with, with the retailers in South Africa. And I think it, when, if that's solved, and I think that's an that's a individual people thing that you, you, you chat through and you solve, um, I think it's a massive opportunity. So that's definitely something I would add a lot more into the mm. portfolio. Yeah, that's, that's one we should be looking at, I agree. For me, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll talk to some names that, or to, to sectors that I personally am, am slightly more bearish on. We've talked about the banks. You know, I would probably have a lower weighting to to banks if, as I kind of do in my little shadow portfolio. The other thing that we probably could think more about is, you know, the, the kind of structural winners. You know, the, 
are, are there some shares that you know something like a Bidcorp, which you know could maybe take market share not has nothing to do with South Africa. Um, it looks fairly expensive on kind of 22, 23 odd times earnings, but you know something that could take market share for the next twenty years and can actually expand geographically. To me, it's 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 getting that kind of you know trade off right, uh, which, which again is very difficult. But yeah, those those are kind of the the areas that I'm in one aspect more bearish on and maybe more constructive on. Do you have any favorites, Sim? Yeah, you can just look at the portfolio. I put all my favorites in there already. Um, to finish off with, actually, we should just come back to the point we started with, which was our offshore exposure. So I think one of, one of the biggest calls we're making, and we're probably not alone here, you know, some of our, of our local competitors have done the same thing, is we haven't used that full offshore exposure. So as we've discussed, we actually, you know, certainly I think, and it sounds like you agree, they're, they're actually quite a few opportunities on the JSE if you're being selective. So we've, what, if you just look at the fact sheet of, the, of again, the Allen Gray Fund, for example, you can see most of our equity exposure in the fund is on the local side. So not necessarily all companies operating in SA, but certainly companies listed on the JSE. So, so that's quite a big call that we're making because you could be investing that in global equities. Mm-hmm. And implicitly what we're saying is we're thinking the returns from JSE listed companies is, is you know, going to be better than the world market. So that's that's an important call that that we're making, and obviously we're not making it from a top down basis. We, you know, that's a, a flow through from the the analysis we're doing on the individual companies. So, I mean, do you think that's are we missing the pot there, or do you think that would you agree with that sort of view? When you think of the world and in particular developed markets, the last years it's a big shock from going to a world where people thought inflation was dead, interest rates were near zero. So I think those markets still have a lot of shaking outs to do, whereas maybe a shift for us, a lot in our analysis and our thinking is being more conscious on debt levels and what interest rate rises mean for the businesses we invested in, and also being more conscious on inflation and businesses' abilities to handle and work in a world of inflation. Inflation is not new for South Africa. Businesses are very good at, at, at pushing pricing through and, and handling cost of labor. Whereas in a lot of the developed world, inflation is something that people haven't learned to deal with for a while. And I guess in the SA market, again, we have commodities, which are often the things that cause inflation. I, I, I do think it, it is possible in the source of disruption we have in the world. So higher interest rates, higher for longer inflation, that things in a market like South Africa might actually do a bit better, but just because we are better able to handle it. And disruption to the businesses on, on those factors is a bit less. So, and in our indices, is less of these high duration um, businesses or these tech businesses with earnings way off in the future. Those things tend to struggle quite a bit with inflation and, and, and the higher for longer interest rates. And there's a cost to money now. So, you, you can't hold something that's going to make profits in 10, 20 years anymore. It's, it's, it, there's a higher opportunity cost to that now. The only thing I'd add is, the rand is also important. So, you know, while we don't try to make a macro forecast, you know, we do try, we do try to be on the right side of the trend. The dollar's been strong and has been strong for a very long time. So, you know, to the extent that that you're trying to protect rand returns, if if you do think the rand is is somewhat oversold, that's also a factor in in, in the timing by which you increase your your offshore allocation. Even if you have slightly cheap stocks outside of South Africa. If the rand is is not in your favor, well, then those returns are eroded. Just to kind of reiterate, I think the the point I emphasize often to clients is 
Yes, we're excited about the local opportunities. We think there are prospects for attractive returns, but we're very cognizant of the risks. There are lots of risks in SA, but don't kind of be mistaken. There are risks offshore as well. You know, countries are dealing with inflation, you know, all kinds of other issues. And at least the local market is on a lower valuation. So at least you're not paying for sort of a perfect scenario where in the US, for example, actually you're paying quite a high price. It's not just a higher valuation relative to each other, but also relative to their own history, right? Right. So the US is on a higher valuation still relative to its own history, which which does matter. So, okay. So we've spoken about a lot of negative things. So, so maybe let's close on that positive note then. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thank you to my colleagues, Jitin Pillay and Sipasikhle Zwane for joining me for this episode. We discussed a range of local and global issues that are shaping the local market, from load shedding and inflation to interest rates and a debate on a potential global banking crisis. We also shared a few investment ideas we are excited about and explained why South Africa still remains attractive to investors, despite the risks. To share your thoughts on this episode, please send an email to info at alangray.co.za. This podcast is available wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. You can subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform to be notified of new episodes. Lastly, Alan Gray is an authorized financial services provider. To view the T's and C's and explore our latest insights and investment offering, please visit alangray.co.za. Until next time, I'm Tim Ucker from Alan Gray. This podcast was produced by Volume, and thank you for listening.